You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, yeah, we had left off with uh, Jacob rededicating his life. Uh, God telling him, hey, I'm going to make you, uh, 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 reconvert, uh, reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to have the Messiah come through you, and you are going to be Israel. Your name is Israel, no longer Jacob. And Jacob had made such a mess with things, he was like, oh man, how can this be? And, and God said, it's by my power, El Shaddai, God Almighty, and God reveals himself to Jacob, to Israel, as El Shaddai. Jacob being the swindler, the deceiver is what his name means. And God changing his name to Israel, governed by God. And there Jacob sets up, he's at Bethel and he builds an altar. Uh, Jacob had not been a worshiper. He builds an altar and he worships God there at Bethel. And he changes the name of Bethel, which means the house of God, to El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. And we looked at this last week. A lot of people go to church, but they don't go to the God of the church. Uh, And here Jacob had been that way, and now he says, no, no, no more. Uh, I want to worship you, Lord. Uh, And and, uh, this powerful transformation that is happening in his life. Uh, Verse 16, we pick up right there uh, where we left off. And it says, then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Ephrath is Bethlehem, by the way, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Uh, We have to ask ourselves, why are they leaving Bethel and uh, finding themselves here in Bethlehem or Ephrath? Uh, Well, here's why. They are probably going down to Hebron, which is about 30 miles to the south, to see his father Isaac. And here as they're going, Rachel is pregnant. Uh, She's older in age, older to be pregnant, and she goes into labor prematurely as they're they're going. Uh, The reason they're going down to Hebron, if you jump back to verse 8, I told you last week, and we skipped it, and I told you we would look at it this week, Take a look at verse 8. Are you there? Yes. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, Rebecca is Jacob's mom, right? And so Rebecca was Jacob's uh, was Rebecca's nurse, which means that she helped raise Jacob. She was like Nana, right? I mean, she was uh, you know, a big part of Jacob's life. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died. And she was buried below Bethel, under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth, which means the weeping oath. Uh, They wept for her there as she died, loss of a family member. So now Deborah has died, and that was she was an important role in Jacob's life. Uh, Again, kind of like a second mom. 
And Jacob then uh, must have determined, well, I'm going to go see my dad in Hebron. And that's a 30-mile journey, and they get going on this journey, and what happens? Well, Rachel goes into labor. Uh, So that's what happens. They're there in Ephrath, about halfway there, about 15 miles to Hebron, uh, uh, halfway there from Bethel, and Rachel labored in childbirth. And she had hard labor, it says in verse 16. Verse 17. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. Uh, You'll remember she had Joseph. uh, She had been barren for a long time and she had Joseph. And when she had Joseph, she prayed, uh, Lord, give me another child. Uh, We'll hear all these years pass, and now the the midwife says, hey, do not fear, you're going to have this son also. Verse 18, and so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died. Wow, she dies in childbirth. I want you to underline the words, as her soul was departing, as her soul was departing. We'll come back to that in just a minute. As her soul was departing, that she called his name Benoni. Benoni means son of my sorrow. Ben in Hebrew is son, and Oni sorrow, son of my sorrow. She's there in pain. She can feel the life going out of her, and she names the son as it's being born, son of my sorrow. Uh, no, no hospital, uh, nothing else. She's probably hemorrhaging, and she names the child Ben-Onai. Uh, what a tough name for a kid, wouldn't you agree? Hey, uh, son of sorrow, come here a minute. Uh, that'd be a tough name to go through. So his father, Jacob, changed his name and called it Benjamin. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. Again, Ben, son, uh, Benjamin, son of my right hand. And here, interestingly enough, in this dark and difficult situation, the Bible gives us a glimmer into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, how so? Uh, Well, here we see a prefigure, if you will. We see a prophetic foreshadow of Jesus. For this one child is a son of sorrow and also a son of the right hand. And may I present to you? Jesus is the exact same thing. Here we see a foreshadow of who Jesus is, right? Uh, Son of sorrow and also son of the right hand. Uh, We know that when Jesus came to to earth as a man, uh, he was severely mistreated. Uh, Grew up in a poor home, taking on the form of uh, of a man in a poor family. Uh, think of it, the eternal God becomes a God becomes a man, and he chooses to come to a poor family with no means. And then his whole life he grows up, and excuse the, the, the harsh language, his whole life he's called a bastard. He's mocked, he's jeered. And ultimately, uh, his message is refused, and he's crucified and killed uh, for being the son of God. And uh, he became, he was the son of sorrow. And there are some verses that speak of this. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, up on your screens, 
Uh, let's take a look at this. An amazing passage. Uh, let me hear you read this uh, as a unified uh, body, one, one voice. Let's read out loud. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's pause there. The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years, seven centuries before the incarnation, before Jesus would become a man. He writes, who is going to believe our story? Who is going to believe this incredible story? And who is it going to be revealed, the arm of the Lord? What does that mean, the arm of the Lord? Well, the arm uh, in in Scripture uh, represents the same thing it represents today. What does this represent? Strength or power, right? You got a big guy, well, maybe not when I do it, but when JC does it, it represents strength or power, right? Uh, Yeah, big guns, right? And he says, who is the Lord's power going to be revealed to? And who is going to believe our story? For it's an incredible story. And Isaiah is prophesying it 700 years in advance. And look what he says. For he, uh, that's God in human form, Jesus, shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground? What does that mean? Well, God had made a covenant with David, King David, uh, the mighty king of Israel, right? The sweet psalmist who understood the heart of God, that David. God had made a covenant with David that your throne will last how long? Forever. And that David, your descendant, will sit on the throne forever. Problem? Well, Israel fell into sin. And the throne of David crumbled. And Israel was taken captive into other nations and they had no king on the throne. And, and now, uh, at Jesus' time, that throne was long gone. And so notice what it says. Uh, he will, Jesus will grow up before him as a root out of dry ground. Have you ever seen a tree that had been chopped down like long ago and there's this old stump, looks like it's dead there just sitting on the ground? And then spring comes along, and lo and behold, this new little twig starts coming out of this. Well, that is Jesus in the Davidic kingdom. Jesus was the lineage of David, and this kingdom that had long been broken, now Jesus comes, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is going to fulfill that promise, uh, the eternal king of uh, of the lineage of David. Uh, so that's what Isaiah is referring to there as a root out of dry ground. And notice this, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, it's saying that God is going to become a man. And when he does, he's going to look pretty average. He's not going to be like Brad Pitt. He's not going to have the chest of J.C., He's going to look like a scrawny guy, just a regular guy. No outward beauty that we should, why? Because he's coming to be our kinsman redeemer. He's coming to be just like us. 
and he emptied himself of all of his glory, and he becomes a man, a poor man, uh, dwelling among us. Uh, Let's go on, the rest of the verse. He was despised and rejected by men, read with me, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Ben Omai, right? Uh, A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Who sorrows, by the way? Our sorrows. You see, he came into a sinful world who did not understand God's love for them. They did not realize, because he looked like a regular guy, that he was God in a human body. That the creator of the universe had become one of us, that he might dwell among us and show us the way and go to a cross to take on our sins. And we, in our sin, persecute him and call him a bastard and uh, despise him and spit on him and all the things he was a man acquainted with a man of sorrows acquainted with grief uh, read with me and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted How crazy that we missed the mark. And here you see the Isaiah's reason for starting this amazing chapter. If you have not read Isaiah 53, oh, it is incredibly profound. I would encourage you before you go to bed tonight, take time and really digest it on your own. Uh, But he starts off the question, who is going to believe this story? Who's going to believe this prophecy? And who is going to understand the strong arm of the the Lord? Because it's uh, not like what we would think would happen, right? We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. Rest of the verse. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed of what? of our transgressions and our iniquities. There are false teachers who will teach today, by his stripes you can have physical healing. And I want you to know, that is not what the verse is teaching. Yes, Jesus brings physical healing. I have seen it. I saw a woman cured of cancer right here in that chair. Medical records to prove it. I have seen him heal numerous times. I've also seen him not heal numerous times. Yes, Jesus is a healer, but this verse doesn't mean that you're going to be healed because here's what happens. If you are healed of your cold or you are healed of your cancer, guess what is still going to happen to you? You're still going to die. And what this verse is teaching us, no, not that we're going to have physical healing, but that we're going to be healed contextually of our transgressions which means our sins against God and our iniquities, which means our rebellion against God. That is what he is going to heal us from so that we can have eternal life. And yes, he also does physical healing, but that's not what this verse is about. Uh, Here we see he is a son of sorrow. He took on our sorrows. Uh, He is Ben Onai, if you will, right? But he is also Benjamin son of the right hand 
And uh, look at uh, uh, this next verse, uh, Matthew 26. Look what it says. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. And the high priest, this is at Jesus' trial when they were uh, wanting to crucify him, right? When he was standing before the high priest at his trial. Read with me. And the high priest answered and said to him, to Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The reason the high priest put him under oath, oath is because Jesus was not speaking to him. He just sat there silent. And so the high priest puts him under the oath uh, and forces him to answer. And because that was law, religious, that was you know, in the Bible, if the high priest, you, so Jesus is going to answer. And notice what he says. The high priest says, tell us if you are the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. It means the one that was promised all through the Old Testament. The high priest is asking Jesus, Jesus, tell us if you are the one that the whole Old Testament speaks of. The Messiah, the Son of God. And read with me what Jesus says, verse 64. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. And I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh my goodness. And the high priest hears this and he tears his clothes, his religious robe, and he says, blasphemy. He makes himself to be God. And they crucified him, not for being a good teacher, but for saying he was God. Uh, and notice, uh, Jesus says, you're going to see me coming at the right hand of power and sitting at the right hand of the almighty God. He is Benjamin. He is Benoni and he is Benjamin. He is the son of sorrow. Uh, put that other slide back up. He is the son of sorrow and he is the son of my right hand. He is both. And here in this difficult story of Rachel uh, giving birth and dying in child labor, uh, we see a glimpse of the hope, a glimpse of the gospel uh, coming uh, prophetically uh, through this child, Benjamin. Um, so where do we leave off? We left off verse, uh, verse 18. And again, if you will, underline those words, as her soul was departing. We'll come back to that. Verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Uh, uh, interesting, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, the son of sorrow and the son of the right hand, born in Bethlehem. Very prophetic. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. To this day means at the time where Moses was writing this, uh, there was a, still a monument there of Rachel's grave. Interesting, when you go to Bethlehem today, uh, uh, there's a monument there still of the tomb of Rachel's grave. And, and uh, we're going in October, but I don't think we'll go see this because I think it's just a tourist spot. Uh, that tomb they have there was uh, probably not the original one. And, uh, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, there's some things I want us to glean from this passage. Here Jacob is God's man. 
God has a covenant with him. God is changing his name to Israel. He is the one that he is going to bring uh, the, the Messiah through. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham, his grandfather, with Isaac, his dad, and now with him. He is God's man. This is, this is a guy who God is fully vested in, has a big plan for his life. And here we see that he's facing incredible hardship as he loses his wife. And here's what I want us to get from this. Uh, God's people are not immune to life's hardships. It's a part of life. We all face hardships. We all face death. We all face the, the loss of a loved one. And it's hard to go through. Jacob loved Rachel. She was his first love. He never wanted another wife. He wanted her. This was, it was, she was, she was so special to him. And life is hard. And God's people are not immune to life's hardships. Uh, there are false teachers who will tell us that you can cast out all your problems in Jesus' name. And you just need to cast it out in Jesus' name. And can I tell you something? That is a total lie. That's just not true. God's people are not immune to hardships. They never have been all through the Bible. Why? Because this is a fallen world. It's a broken place. And there are bad things that happen on this earth. And these false teachers, they are lying to you. They're telling you things that you want to hear so that you will follow them and they can get a, they're just, they're just trying to serve themselves. And the Bible says that in the last days, because people have itching ears, that we will heap up for ourselves teachers who tell us the things that we want to hear. And there's no shortage of people who will do that. And they'll tell you, you can just cast out your problems in Jesus' name, and you have authority. And, and what happens is, is Jesus just becomes your little servant, and you are the God who tells Jesus what to do. I want you to know, that is messed up. Jesus is not my servant. I am his servant. There's a big difference. And so, uh, now, uh, on the flip side, it is true that when we obey Jesus as Lord, we will have fewer hardships in life. Why is that? Because many of the hardships that we experience in life are self-inflicted by our own sin, Right? And so when we make Jesus the Lord of our life, we have far fewer hardships in our life. Because instead of being a selfish husband or a selfish wife, we become a selfless husband and a selfless wife when we make Jesus the Lord of our life. And we invest more in other people and we're not, uh, we're, you know, we're not takers, we're givers. We're, we're, we're forgiving and we're, we've been forgiven by the mercy of Jesus Christ and we forgive others. And so, uh, yes, there are far fewer hardships when we make Jesus our, our Lord because God's ways work. And when you walk in them, they build strong marriages and they build strong families and they build strong relationships with friends. Uh, but even still, we will all face hardships from time to time. This world is cursed by sin. And we cannot escape the hardships that come because of sin. Jesus himself endured tremendous hardships. And so will we. Jesus said it this way. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 
But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Uh, there is tribulation in the world. We're not going to be immune. But he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jacob is God's man, and yet Jacob goes through tremendous hardship losing Rachel. Why? Because, uh, you know, uh, God's people are not immune to life's hardships. We all are, all are going to face them. But here's what I want us to also remember. Even though we face God's hardships, we have God's Spirit working in our lives to comfort us, to lead us, and to guide us even in the midst of those hardships. So much so that as you go through hardships, as you abide in Christ, uh, you will experience the comfort of Christ even as Jacob here gets a glimpse of the future work that God is doing in and through his life. And I know that the Holy Spirit comes alongside at that time and gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. I look at some of the most difficult times in my life. Uh, there was a time when my son Nathan had a, uh, he was a high school pastor here at the Mission Church, and he was with a couple of kids, and they were uh, uh, planning a ministry event. They decided to skate to the taco shop, and he fell on the skateboard not wearing a helmet, and he completely crushed in the back of his head, seized on the spot instantly, and went unconscious. They had to intubate him right there on the spot. And his life was hanging by a thread. Was one of the most difficult times I've ever been through in my life. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, there was a peace that surpasses understanding. I remember God uh, working in ways that just blew my mind. For one thing, you guys were amazing. At the hospital, there was over 100 people in the waiting room from about 6 a.m. all the way until about midnight. Uh, 100 people in the waiting room bringing food, uh, fellowshipping, laughing, and it was so refreshing to just go into that waiting room and to be surrounded by all the love that was there. The nurses and the doctors were so blown, blown away. They thought Nathan was famous. They were like, is this guy a, a rock star or something? Why are all these people in there? And I had the ability to say, this is the love of Christ manifest in a tangible way through his people. And as crazy as it is, I don't understand it. In the hardest time of my life where I did not know if I was going to have my son or not, there was the peace and the presence of God. And I tell you, uh, it, it's a mystery to me. God used me. I led more people to Jesus during that two weeks when he was hanging by a thread than any other time in my life. It was crazy. Doctors were coming in and just pouring their hearts out to me. And uh, I digress, but uh, uh, there's comfort even in the midst of our hardships. We're not immune from them, but God gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. And it's amazing to see. Uh, this is real life. And this is real faith. And this is real Christianity. Uh, it's not a fairy tale. Uh, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with our God. The next thing that Jacob has uh, is a difficult, uh, another difficult uh, passage to look at um, as we look at uh, Reuben, his son, his firstborn, and Reuben's heinous sin. Uh, quite, uh, uh, quite disgusting what we're going to read. Uh, verse 21, then Israel journeyed 
and pinched, pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Uh, uh, the Tower of Eder, it is believed, we don't know for sure, the Tower of Eder was in Bethlehem, and we believe it was a watchtower for the shepherds where they would climb up and take a look at the overview of the field and take a look at their sheep. And uh, there, when uh, they were uh, camped out at the Tower of Eder, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Belah, his father's concubine. Belah was Rachel's maidservant. Remember, Rachel couldn't have kids, and so she took her maidservant, Bela. And she said, Jacob, go into her and have kids for me through her, a surrogate mom. Uh, and Reuben here goes and sleeps with Bela, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Jacob heard about it. Can you imagine the pain that this must have inflicted on Jacob, on Israel? Uh, I can't even imagine how, how hurtful that must be and what that must have done to the relationship. And the Bible here doesn't tell us what Jacob does. Uh, doesn't really give us any, any insight into any of that. Um, but I know it must have caused a great wedge between them. Uh, what was Reuben's motive? Uh, Reuben, a young man, what was his motive? Was it lust? Uh, well, probably not. Uh, what was Reuben's motive? Uh, Reuben's probable motive was to establish his authority as the head of the family enterprise. Reuben was the firstborn. And he was on a power grab. Uh, he wanted to say, hey, uh, I'm going to be the one who takes over the family business or the family enterprise. You'll remember Jacob was very, very wealthy. Uh, a modern-day multi-multi-millionaire. Uh, uh, camels, uh, trade routes, uh, all kinds of employees, all kinds of wealth. And Reuben is here trying to establish himself as the head of all of it. Putting himself ahead of all of his brothers and, and just a big power grab. And again, incredibly hurtful, painful for Jacob. Uh, we don't read of Jacob doing anything right here, but we know that in, in Genesis 49... Before Jacob died, Jacob died at 147 years of age. Uh, there, uh, at, a, at 147 years of age, Jacob, in, in chapter 49, when we get there, he leans on his staff, and we see what God has made him into. And there, Israel leans on his staff, and he speaks prophetically over each one of his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he speaks prophetic words over each one of them that are very profound. And of Reuben, his firstborn, he takes away the double portion inheritance that should be his, and he gives it to Judah, his other son. And Judah is the, is the tribe that Jesus came through. Uh, and he takes that blessing from Reuben and gives it to Judah. Uh, we can learn something from this. Beware of self-promotion. Beware of pride. Beware of your ego. Beware of your self-seeking sinful nature. For it will destroy your judgment. And it will hurt people around you. 
I know this about you because I know this about me. If you look back on the things in life that you deeply regret, the things that you regret the most in life, the things that you wish if you could do it over again, I would do this over again, I would present to you, if you look back on that, it had to do with selfishness. It had to do with putting yourself first above others. It had to do with pride. And what it does is it blinds us to what is good. It blinds us to the heart of others. I have seen men throw away their entire family as they put their needs above and what it does to a family. I have seen women do the same. I have seen ministry leaders who God gave them so much and they put their own carnal desires on, gave it first place and it destroys, it destroys all that God has given. May we be wise. No wonder the Bible tells us that God hates pride and this ego and this self-seeking. Proverbs 6 tells us, Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. And pride is what tops the list of the things that God hates. Because it will distort our judgment. And oh, Reuben, what are you thinking? And oh, the harm that you have caused yourself, the embarrassment you've caused yourself, and the tremendous pain that you have caused your father. Uh, may we be wise. Um, it is far better... Uh, to let God promote us than to promote ourselves. Uh, there's an ancient proverb, not in the Bible, but uh, uh, worth memorizing, uh, memorizing. It says, let someone else honk your horn and the sound will travel twice as far. Do you understand? Uh, don't go around seeking your own greatness. Uh, far better to let God promote you than to seek the promotion yourself. Far better to let God raise you up than to raise yourself up. And Jesus taught this same thing multiple times. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Far better to have God raise you up. Jesus says, when you go in somewhere, don't go pick the best place, best seat for yourself. Don't go sit up front for yourself. No offense to anybody sitting up front. Uh, you're good students. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but he says, if you go to a banquet, don't go choose the best seat. Better to choose the worst seat and to have the master of the banquet come and say, no, 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 no. Why don't you come sit up here by me? Instead of uh, you choosing the best seat and the master of the banquet coming and saying, oh, excuse me, can you sit over there, please? This seat was for someone else. Uh, whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. humbled. But he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Jesus' words, not mine. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. For even God himself, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when you put the needs of others above yourself, you will reflect the love and the wisdom and the character of Jesus Christ, and God will raise you up. 
uh, and far better. Here we see the folly of natural man, and look what Reuben does. Uh, how many of you would say, this is disgusting? Yeah, it's disgusting. How many of you admire it? No, it's deplorable. And our selfishness looks no different, by the way. Um, Let's go on. We'll, uh, we'll see if we can wrap up this chapter. And uh, we're going to see here the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at this. Uh, the second half of 22. Now the sons of Jacob, uh, who Jacob became Israel, the sons of Jacob were 12. And here we see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Even though Jacob is messy and dysfunctional and everything else, God's hand is still upon his life. And he's bringing these 12 tribes of Israel into fruition. 12 tribes of Israel, what does that mean? Well, Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, Jacob became Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And each one of those sons is going to become a major tribe in this nation. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel, if you will. Uh, and here, uh, you know, we look at Reuben, and how messed up was that? That's like really messed up, right? And we look at Jacob, his life is messy. Why does God use such messed up people? Because that's all there is. <laughs> that's all there is. And may that give you and I great encouragement, because uh, even though we're messed up, as we walk in the ways of the Lord, God's will is brought into fruition. And here are the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, verse 23, the sons of Leah. Uh, she had six children. Leah was the ugly wife that got the switcheroo, right? Uh, he wanted to marry Rachel, the beautiful wife, and got the ugly sister and said, well, she had the most kids. She had six. She had Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the one we just read about. She had Simeon. She had Levi. Uh, Levi became the priestly tribe. She had Judah, interestingly enough. Judah, the lineage where with Jesus would come through. She had Issachar. Uh, Issachar, uh, centuries later, would be, his tribe would be known for this. Uh, the men of Issachar were wise in understanding in the affairs of their day, in the, si in the signs of the times of their day. Uh, they had Issachar, a wise tribe. Uh, she had Zebulun. Uh, the, so six tribes came out of Leah. The sons of Rachel were Joseph. Uh, Joseph, we're going to be moving into his life. Uh, he was Jacob's favorite. Why was he uh, Jacob's favorite? Because of his love for Rachel. Uh, we're going to learn he's, gonna, he's the one that has the coat of many colors, right? The one that gets, uh, you know, has the, the father's uh, favor on his life. And Benjamin, who was just born at, at Rachel's passing, Ben-Onai and, and, and uh, Benjamin. Uh, so those are the sons of Rachel, too. The sons of Bela, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpha, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram and in, the, in, the, and in Canaan, the promised land. Uh, the 12 tribes of Abraham, the 12 tri uh, tribes of Israel coming into existence and uh, here we just see the faithfulness of God to do his work and to bring his plan into fruition. And may I share with you, the same thing is happening in your life. Walk with him. Trust him. Make him the Lord of your life. And he is bringing all of his plans for your life into fruition. And you will grow. You will thrive. You will be fruitful as God builds you. He's faithful to do what, what he says he will. Uh, now verse 27. Let's, let's try to wrap up our chapter here. Uh, Jacob uh, came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Or 
Kershoth Arba, just another name. That is Hebron. Uh, three different names there, all referring to Hebron. Uh, Jacob now finally goes back to Hebron, where his dad is. Isaac is very old. And he goes back there. It's where he was going when he heard that Deborah died, right? He started to go. But then Rachel went into labor, and then all that happened. So it all got delayed. But he finally goes back to Hebron. Uh, that's verse 27. And this is really cool. As he's there in Hebron, uh, uh, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt, where his grandpa and his dad was now living, uh, he goes back to Hebron, and it's really cool to know that Jacob, or Israel, spends 12 years there in Hebron with his father before he dies. And you'll remember, the last, thing, last time Jacob saw his dad, what was he doing? He was deceiving him. He was lying to him, trying to swindle the birthright. And now he goes back and he gets 12 years of reconciliation before his dad dies. Uh, really cool. Um, verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Man, that's a long life. So Isaac, Isaac breathed his last and died. And I want you to underline these words. And was gathered to his people. Underline that. And was gathered to his people. Being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried, buried him. Uh, what do we learn about Esau and Jacob? Uh, if they're there burying him, what does that mean? They're, they've reconciled. Uh, uh, they've been there together, uh, uh, taking care of dad his last years of life, and there's reconciliation, really cool. And so they bury him there. And we know from Genesis 49, they bury him at the cave of Machpelah, uh, where Abraham bought the first piece of land he bought in the promised land. And he, Abraham and Sarah were buried there. And uh, now Isaac and Rebekah are buried there. And... Um, the, the boys, Jacob and Esau, have a reunion there and, and, and reconcile. Uh, we look at this, and we've seen in this passage uh, three deaths. The death of Deborah, the death of Rebekah, and now the death of uh, his father, Isaac. Uh, and uh, we have to look at some things. Uh, there were some things I had you underline that is showing us and speaking to us about some things. And it begs the question... What happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? And I want to spend the rest of our time before we take communion looking at the subject. What happens to us when we die? Is there really life after death? Are heaven and hell real places? Uh, or is this life all that there is? I want you to know this is the chief question of mankind throughout the ages. And think about this. It is quite significant. The fact that every culture and every society asks this question is in itself quite revealing. Is it not? From the beginning of time, every civilization that we look at has all asked this question. What happens when we die? The ancient Greeks asked this question. We know that. Man, we look at their writings. They put a lot of thought into what happens when we die. The mighty Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, they put a lot of thought into what happens when we die. The Babylonians put a lot of thought into what happens when we die. How about the Egyptians? 
They put a lot of thought into what happens when we die. As a matter of fact, they built pyramids, grand pyramids, that were actually just tombs for the dead, where they would embalm themselves and put in all these things, all because they were hoping for a better afterlife. And yes, it was occultic, and yes, it was sinful, and yes, it was wrong, but it shows us this truth that life after death was on their mind big time. It is the chief question of mankind throughout the ages. As a matter of fact, the oldest uh, known people group in the Fertile Crescent were the Sumerians. They lived in southern Mesopotamia. It goes all the way back to about 4000 BC, the oldest people group that we have writings of. And, And they believed in life after death and spent a lot of time thinking about it. And it's very significant That virtually every civilization from the beginning of time until our present day has believed in life after death. How does that happen? Somehow, we instinctively know that there is life after death. How is it that we know that? And why is it that we ponder it? Well, the reason is, the Bible would tell us, is that God has written eternity on our hearts you see we would like to pretend that there is no life after death and we try to suppress that idea and we try to not think about it and we try to push it away but we go to bed at night and we put our head on our pillow and we get alone at times and we start thinking why because God has written it where on our heart we can't escape it And history shows this to be true. Ecclesiastes 3.10 is the verse that shows this. Uh, Let me hear you read this together as a unified voice. I have seen the God-given tasks with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He, that's God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. Let's look at what Solomon is saying here in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man that ever lived. He said, I've seen the God-given task which the sons of men are given by God to be occupied with. What does that mean? Well, it means when you have a toddler, what's he going to play with? Toys. He wants to play with trucks and wants to, she wants to play with dolls and they want to And then they grow a little bit, and they want to play with Legos, and they want to play with balls. Why? Because those are the God-given tasks that men are to be occupied with. And it's beautiful in its time. And then that boy, that girl, they grow, and they become teenagers, and suddenly the Barbies get put down, the American Girl dolls get put down, the Legos get put down, and suddenly I'm interested in a woman. I'm interested in a man. And a boy is interested in being the best baseball player or being the best football player or being the king of the hill. Why? Because those are the things that God has occupied him with and it's beautiful in its time. God wants men to be conquerors of the hill. And that's written on little boys' hearts. And then the time comes and they put away the Legos and they look at the girl and they want to be in a relationship. Why? Because God's given that to men to occupy themselves with. And it's beautiful in its time. But in all of this, there's something going on. 
The things that we occupy ourselves with change with each season of life. But in all of it, God has written what? Eternity on our hearts. And even though we are now trying to build our career or trying to build our family or trying to, there's something bigger that is still there going, hey, what about eternity? What about eternity? And we may try to suppress it, but it is always there because it is written on our hearts. And there is someone fueling the fire. His name is the Holy Spirit. He is God. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 16, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. What does that mean? It means we will be selfish and he will say, hey, that wasn't good, man. You've sinned. And there's a righteous standard. And you're not measuring up. And there's a judgment to come. And you're going to answer to me. And he's going to point us to, you need to be righteous. And righteousness can only come through Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life before we come to God. And among other things, he does as well. But he's convicting us of the, of the judgment to come. There's an eternal life. And, and, and that is just done by God. It is written on our hearts. And I want you to know the Bible is very clear, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that life after death is a reality for all people. Life after death is a reality for all people. In other words, we don't just die and that's the end of it. And that has been written on our hearts. Uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I could give you scores of verses. For time's sake, I'll give you two. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. But I could give you scores. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Daniel writing, uh, let's take a look at this verse. Read with me. Then those who sleep in the dust of the earth. What does sleep in the dust of the earth mean? Die. Yeah, those who die shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What common adjective do you notice in there? Everlasting. You see, you are a soul living in a body and your soul will live forever. You will never cease to exist one way or another. This is a reality. The demons, when they fell, excuse me, the angels, when they fell, when they lost their first estate, they didn't cease to exist. They live forever, and so will you. Uh, verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Uh, Daniel is telling us that, hey, there are rewards given in the afterlife. And those who live for the things of God are going to shine brightly. They're going to get more rewards. Paul picks up this teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, there's a glory of the sun. There's the glory of the moon. There's also the glory of the stars. And each one differs in glory. Would you agree? Which is more glorious, the sun or the moon? Oh, the sun. Infinitely more. The sun comes up and you can't even see the moon. But if the sun goes down, well, then you can see the light of the moon. But the sun, far more glory. He says there's also glory of the stars. And each one differs in glory. And you know the words he says next? This is verbatim. So it is in the resurrection 
of the dead. What's that? Each one will differ in what? In glory, based on what you've done with what you've been given. Uh, this is the reality. And all of us are going to live. Uh, life after death is a reality for all people. Uh, Jesus spoke frequently of life after death. He said there is going to be a resurrection of the just. And there's also a resurrection of what? The unjust. Those who believe in me by faith. That I am God who came to the, became a man to die on a cross to give you eternal life. You'll be justified. If you don't believe that, you'll be unjust. And both will be resurrected. Uh, look what Jesus said in, in uh, John 5.28. Let me hear you read this. All who are in the graves will hear his voice. That voice is Jesus, by the way. Isn't that crazy? All who are in the grave will hear Jesus' voice. Wow. And they'll come forth. Is that not wild? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of the condemnation. Wow. Uh, crystal clear. And I could give you scores and scores of verses. Eternal life is real. Heaven and hell are real. And I want you to know this. There is no one partying in hell. <laughs> Jesus said it repeatedly. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The phrase gnashing of teeth gives me the willies. Gnashing of teeth. Yuck. Do you know how many times Jesus said gnashing of teeth? Do you know how many times Jesus said that? Jesus, the one who never repeats things twice. Jesus, who never does one miracle the same way. Jesus, who is so original, he does everything different. Do you know how many times he said gnashing of teeth? Seven different teachings. I think he wants us to pay attention. Uh, what is my point? Life after death is a reality for all people. We need to be wise. And notice how the Bible speaks of life after death as if it is already a known reality. It speaks of Rachel's and Isaac's deaths here and their life after death as if it is a known reality. Did you, did you catch it? I asked you to underline it. Verse 18, and it says... As her soul was what? Departing. Her soul, yeah, the Hebrew word, nephesh, it is the real you, it is the, the, it is the, the eternal you, it is your, your real self. As her soul was what? Departing. Departing from what? Her body. Her body was dying, and as her body was dying, her soul was departing. Wow. You see, this body is not who you are. Where do your thoughts originate? In your mind? Oh, really? Well, what triggers your mind to originate that thought? We don't know. You are a soul, you possess a body, your body is perishable. It will die, but your soul will remain forever. The Bible says, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The body returns to the ground where it came from, and the soul returns to God where it came from. Wow. 
And so we see that we uh, are, uh, the, the Bible speaks of these things as if we, we knew they were into existence. As her soul was departing, what does that mean? Where did it go? Notice what it says in verse 29 of Isaac. Isaac breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What does that mean? Where are his people? And where did her soul go as it was departing? Which begs us to the next question, right? Where do we go when we die? If all of us live after we die, where do we go when we die? Uh, well, the Bible speaks a lot about it. And by I say, when I say where do we go, I'm talking about our soul, the part of us that lives forever. Your body's going to go to the grave and it's going to uh, just be worm food. Uh, but your soul is going to go back to God. Uh, take a look. Let's flip, if you will, to the New Testament and go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Try to flip there fast so we can get into communion as well. Luke 16. It's a great sound, isn't it? The Bible page is turning. Would to God that would be heard in every church across the United States. Uh, <clears throat> Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus speaking, uh, by the way, Luke 16, 19 is where you're going. By the way, uh, there are some who say this is a parable. I want you to know I do not believe this is a parable. Here's why. Jesus never used names in parables. He uses names here. I believe this is a real story. Uh, uh, Jesus is teaching us something here. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Uh, purple was a color of royalty. Uh, he wore Gucci, in other words. <laughs> and he fared sumptuously every day. He had good food, steak and lobster. Verse 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that when the beggar died, that he was carried by the angels to the Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Interesting. Two very different lights, lives, but both the same end. Everyone dies. And what you gather on the journey isn't really the issue. How much you have, what, a big deal. You still die, right? They both die. And look at this. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23. And being in torments. Everybody say torments. And now circle the word. Uh, being in torments. It means anguish. It means uh, pain and suffering. Being in torments in Hades. That's where they are in Hades. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. And Lazarus there comforted in Abraham's bosom. In other words, he's got full memory. He has all his faculties. Uh, and he cries out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. For I am, what? Tormented in this flame. Same word again. Tormented in this flame. Have him just dip his finger in the water and... Cool me, I'm just in anguish here, I'm in torment. 
Verse 25, Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are, there it is again, Jesus used this word three times now, and you are tormented. Besides this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, there is a geographical split in Hades, and no one can cross over the aisle. In other words, God's judgment is final. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, and there is no changing at that point. Now is the only time to make your decision. God's judgment is final. Verse 27, the rich man says, well, if he can't come over here, uh, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he might testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Says it again. Here we see that this rich man had all his faculties and all his memories and all his regrets. And Abraham answered him and said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Uh, the answer, they have God's word. Moses and the prophets, they have the Bible. Let them hear the Bible, the word of God. Verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one, excuse me, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see a miracle, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the word of God written by Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And Jesus himself proved this to be true. I know we think, if I just had a miracle, I'd believe. Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. And I'll prove it to you. Some crazy things here. Some radical things. Uh, where do we go when we die? Well, before Jesus died on the cross, everyone went to Hades when they died. Hades? Yeah, the good, the bad, all of them went to Hades. In the Old Testament, Hades was called Sheol. It's the Hebrew word for Hades. It means the place of the dead. It is believed that Hades is in the center of the earth. It's interesting. Uh, I'm told they've just dug a really huge hole uh, trying to see how far they can dig. And, and they got so far, they got like, I forget how many miles deep, and it got so hot they couldn't dig anymore. The bits would just melt. They couldn't go any further. Uh, they went miles, I mean, incredibly deep. Man's accomplishment's amazing. And so they dropped a microphone down there. You can Google this if you want. I don't know if it's real or not, but I think it is. Uh, they dropped a microphone down there, and do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like torment, man. It sounds like torment. And they don't, we don't know what it is. They give a scientific explanation. Well, they say, well, that's the gases coming out and echoing in this long... But I tell you what, it sounds demonic to me. Uh, anyway, I'm sidebarring, uh, off the track. Uh, it was a place of the dead, and it was separated by a gulf. On one side, it was a place of blessing. On the other side, it was a torment. Jesus used the word four times. 
I want you to know I have good news. Believers, when they die today, no longer go to Hades. No longer we go to Hades. Uh, Now, because of Jesus' work on the cross, all who have faith in Jesus are with Jesus in heaven the moment that they die. Uh, What great news. Paul would say, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Awesome to consider. Uh, What happened to all the Old Testament saints that were in Hades? And why did they go to Hades in the first place? Well, here's why. Because Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And they could not come into God's presence because they were not cleansed of their sins. They had sacrifices that they gave, but all those were just a foreshadow pointing us to what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Penal substitutionary atonement, that animal taking the place of your sin, taking the punishment of your sin, taking the death of your sin, and you getting to live because that animal took the death. That was just a picture, a foreshadow of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could cleanse us of our sin. And because we weren't cleansed of our sin, no man could ascend into heaven. John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Jesus says, no man has ascended to heaven, not one. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. So when Jesus went to the cross, he was buried into the grave. Guess what the first thing he went and did is? He went and preached to those who were in Hades. And you say, where do you get that? Well, it's in Ephesians chapter 4. Take a look on your screens. Glad you asked. (laughs) Read with me out loud. When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lowest parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill or fulfill all things. The amazing plan of salvation laid out by God from the beginning of the world. Jesus died on the cross. He said, it is finished. And he died And he went down into Hades and he preached to all those who had faith that the Messiah was going to come. And he said, it is finished. And he led captivity captive and he took them up into heaven. And now they're in the presence of the Lord. And now when you and I die or the thief on the the cross dies, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. What about the rich man? Where is he? He's still in where? Hades. And if you are not in faith, when you die, you still go to Hades, only not the good side, the place of torment. And I want you to know something. The timing is amazing to consider. There is no one in hell yet. No one. They are all in Hades. And do you know what they're waiting for? The great white throne judgment. Hades is a place of tremendous anguish and gnashing of teeth. But the lake of fire or the ultimate hell will be even worse, outer darkness. 
and everyone judged at the great white throne judgment. Not one person makes it. All of them go from Hades to the great white throne judgment to hell. Do you know when that happens? Not until after Jesus returns and not until after he rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years. And then after the millennial reign is the great white throne judgment. And after the great white throne judgment, they're cast into the lake of fire, outer darkness. Uh, and they live, they live how long? Forever. Forever. Right now we partake of communion together to remember all that Jesus did to keep that from happening to us. I want you to know the rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. And the poor man did not go to heaven because he was poor. He did not go to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. He went because he had faith in the living God. And the rich man went to Hades because he trusted in himself and he lived for himself instead of believing in the, 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 the things of God. Jesus went to the cross to make the way to heaven available to all of us. He became the son of sorrow so that he could take our death, the death that we deserve, that we might have eternal life. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.